to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, how are you, my friend? Uh, well, cooling off a bit now. It's been a really I mean, hot for London, uh, week in London, but there's a bit of a bit of thunder, thunder shower happening at the moment. So, so I'm enjoying that. And you all are still figuring out COVID stuff over there, as we talked about last podcast. We are, we are. I mean, the vaccination rate is climbing. the The latest news was that there was going to be. I think the date was the 21st of June for kind of the end of all lockdown measures, basically back to normalcy. And they've pushed that date back a month to, I think, July 19th now. Um, I'm totally destroying the evergreen quality of this episode by giving all of these. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, I mean, you know, things continue much as they have the past uh, the past 18 months or so on the COVID file. How are you doing? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Um, You're in New York? I'm in New York. It's been pretty fun. I, I'm having a nice time. Um, New York feels like it's kind of come back to life. It, it does not feel... It feels just about like it's almost that pre-COVID sort of life. Although, you know, it, I did have a friend go to a basketball game, uh, the Brooklyn um, Nets, and he was not vaccinated. And so he had to go across the street and get an instant COVID test. In order to be able to enter the enter the um, enter the arena, but it, it's interesting. To, what's very very interesting to me is, you know, I have this little COVID card, right? This little Moderna trial thing. Ooh! But it looks like I could have forged it. I mean, it does not look official at all. Like, and I wonder why we didn't do some kind of official card system with barcodes and stuff that everybody could just scan it and you just knew that you know you were vaccinated. Because right, I think or it, it was in an app or something, and then how can you fake that? It's right awful. because th- most of the people's vaccination cards i've seen look like they're like middle school library cards or something they do not they do not look like very official sorts of cards so it would would be pretty easy to forge it out with it there's um it's remarkable when you want to do you know tech development um and and you're a large institution that wants to do it how how long it can take to to get it done when you actually like push comes to shove and you think about, Oh, it's got to be multilingual and it's got to work on all these different devices. Like if it were some kind of digital app or something like that, you know, and then it needs to be tested and then it has to be, um, you know, we have to like look at all the security aspects to it. And then you look at all of that and then you think, or we could just have a piece of paper, right? Right. Right. Which we could get, like we could do that tomorrow. And, and you start to have these really interesting conversations about, yeah, we could totally do that, but you know what, 80-20 rule, this is going to be, this is actually going to be more useful than the better solution that would take us a long time to, to, to kind of get past all of these practical implementation issues. And it's really funny, that, you know, I, I mean, this is, this is very old news now, but if I think back to... At the outset of governments, like in the United States and in my native Canada and over here, offering subsidies for um, people whose whose other incomes or businesses were being were being destroyed by by the lockdown. The the first time most of them tried, they had 
these um, application portals that requested that companies upload all sorts of documentary evidence that um, you know these were their expenditures and these were the expenditures that they couldn't defer and here are the contracts that proved it. And, and you get tens of thousands of entities submitting each, you know, dozens of documents into this portal. And, and there are real people behind those portals who somehow have to process them. And it's impossible. Realize it would take us five years <laughs> to process this data. So you just throw it all out. And then you figure out, like, let's just find some kind of quick and dirty thing. Like, you know, do you know your tax number? Can you tell us how much tax you paid last tax period? And if so, we're just going to put the money in your bank and, and sort it out later because a few people might abuse the system, but in, in the big picture, it's going to accomplish more of the objective we want. All I can say is, you know, I've got many friends who work you know, inside government bureaucracies, and it's totally fascinating how, you know, when, when you're running a government, you make decisions for very different reasons that, that individuals make decisions, and they're still the right decisions. Yeah. So speaking of governments and oh, are you going to try to segue from that? <laughs> Did I give you? Segue? I gave you an easy one. Like that's master like obvious. Segue. How this Here we go. Into our so there was a big leak to ProPublica. Uh, basically, the tax information of a bunch of billionaires like Bezos and Elon Musk and Warren Buffett was leaked, and basically. Um, these people are not really paying taxes. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think um, Jeff Bezos' functional tax rate was 0.98%. Elon Musk's was 3.27%. And Warren Buffett was 0.1%. Um, so this is, I mean, you know, the, the, this is a really kind of bombshell revelation. Yeah, it's and really been all over kind of the headlines and the news and the late night talk shows over there in your country, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it's been talked about a lot. And it's, it's, it's just really arresting in, in that, you know, you have these companies, or you have these individuals that are just basically not paying any taxes. And, you know, it's funny because Mitch McConnell went on the Hugh Hewitt radio show and was saying, it's very important to remember that in this country we don't tax wealth. Which is right, by and large, right? Like, you know, like, like, we, like capital gains, right? Like, you have to, you have to cash out your stuff to get taxed on it, right? So if you keep it, if you have a bunch of capital investment and you keep it in the stocks or whatever, and, um, you know, it, it's increasing in value, you don't get taxed on it, right? Unless you cash out on it and, and you actually make cash gains and then you... So it's just pretty interesting that, that there's just two different sorts of tax systems. There's tax systems for people that are workers that draw salaries and things like that. And those are... And this is why it was really interesting when Mitt Romney ran against Barack Obama and they released their tax... Uh, returns. Mitt Romney, even though he's much wealthier than o than Obama, paid a lower tax rate. Oh, that's yeah, because his his because of the source of his money. Right, yeah. his money is yes, his money is all through um, through investments, and Obama's you know you know just gets a normal kind of paycheck and stuff. So, so it raises an interesting question: like, what's the nature of inequality? Right, because clearly, right, and that is kind of there's been like a billion headlines. Yeah, discussing and kind of gawking at you know the private financial data of the richest people in the world, and and so there is this kind of gawker effect, I think, of of the information. But I but I think you're right. As we kind of looked at societies, you know, the herd is excited. This is all it's you know this is all we're talking about. It does seem that behind all these headlines, there is this kind of one question around 
the the nature of inequality and it feels like a good moment to kind of so get into that a bit like what what are we talking about and and where is the what is the nature of the of the of the justice or the injustice um behind that specific thing that everyone's talking about but also just the the broader question of this 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 word inequality which is a giant word in um in politics and and society today and 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 probably needs to be explored a lot more yeah yeah i think it's interesting because i think we all just assume we're for equality right everybody's for everybody's yeah, against like inequality must be a bad thing right um but you know it's interesting you look at you know uh both plato and aristotle in their visions of of human society i mean they both they, they had both they had radically different kind of views on how society should be organized but the one thing they could agree on is that inequality is is inevitable and not necessarily a bad thing right i mean neither of them when they're when they're thinking about their political visions think about equality and you know it's I, I, so i mean aspirationally it's not always been something that has been steamed there is something quite um and and you might know you might know the specific piece of political history more than more than me, but I feel like there is something in in kind of the French and American political revolutions that 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 that's where we really started to marry freedom with equality. Yeah. You know, you think in the French Revolution is like yeah, liberté, égalité, fraternité, like égalité. That was like part of the part of the deal and part of the part of the legitimacy of the overthrow of the royal authority was this this notion that in in some kind of more more natural state we we sh- we ought to be equal which is is interesting because you think about nature is is not a very equal state right that although you could argue i mean you could argue this either way though because i guess you could say on one level, right, Darwinian evolution is pretty, um, you know, the winner, the strong are the winners, right? You know, it's not, it doesn't favor um, equality amongst, although, if you're in a hunter-gatherer society, you are actually probably in much more of an egalitarian state, because everybody's kind of doing all the same things, right? That There's, you know, you have the shared kind of labor, and not that you don't have probably some kind of clan or tribal leadership structure, but, you know, in, in that kind of society... People, it's not, it's not stratified, right? Most people have to learn, like, you know, you've got the hunters and the gatherers and, and you're kind of, you're all working together and, and you're doing mostly the same sort of stuff, right? So that's, so I guess you could argue that there is kind of, in, in certain, you know, states of nature, that, that maybe something more like equality is, is more normal. I think if we kind of, and, and so I think why this is great to be talking about this now is because the 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 pro public story and and kind of the backdrop of the conversation you're having in the U.S. about about taxation and and um, you know are the wealthy paying their fair share, and I really feel that 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 word fairness is is really what is at the core of a lot of what people are animated about when they talk about inequality. I mean, and especially in the case of you know, do the wealthy pay their fair share of taxes. The the real emphasis is not that there are people who are richer than other people, but it's that there's something unfair about this situation. 
And I think, you know, it's, I, I think that, uh, again, sort of, if, if this is where we're going to, you know, the, the first, the first direction to, to signpost and explore is, is, is around, around kind of economic inequality. I think that the, maybe the kind of, the, the classic starting point, you know, if we're in some kind of theory class, the classic starting point is going to be uh, the political theorist John Rawls. Who you know wrote this classic of political theory called uh, justice as fairness, and his you know his his kind of thought experiment, which <laughs> there must have been so many undergraduate like poli sci essays written on John Rawls and his theory of justice. But but his basic argument was that um, that inequality is fair if it um, leads to the least well-off being better off. So kind of his argument that inequality makes sense if by incentivizing people to, um, you know, to really strive and achieve by letting them have fruits of that striving, if that incentive environment helps the whole of society to improve, including the least well-off, then, then that's got to be fair. That that makes sense that there is that kind of inequality in an economic situation because actually, to to level it would make everybody worse off, and that can't be better. And also, he he kind of came up right with the concept of the veil of ignorance, where when you're making societal policies, you should make it with this veil of ignorance, meaning that you're behind the veil and you don't know if you're right. gay, Am straight, I one of the poor rich, people or one of the rich right. people? Right. Right. So you should make a policy not knowing how you'd be affected by it, which is which is obviously the opposite of the way. Most modern democracies work with lobbyists and things like that. What you do, especially, you know, and this is the thing about economic inequality, the more money you have, the more you can get beyond the veil of ignorance and shape things for your interests, right? So, I mean, I, I mean that's one of the challenging things, I think, about, about the way we're making societal arrangements is that, you know, it, it's, it's no surprise. And it's, it's just interesting, too, because you see this trend in the United States, just thinking about this taxation thing. You know, when Eisenhower was president, the top tax rate was like 89%. Kennedy took it to like low 60s or something, and people thought that was great. People thought Kennedy was good, radical. Then Reagan took it to like 38. And ever since the, the 38, you, you can just see, like you, you look at chart. I've seen lots of charts that just chart from, from, from when Reagan does this on how just the people whose incomes grow are the wealthiest and everyone else's income for adjusted dollars is stagnant or going down. You know, then then Bush took it down to 34%. And when Obama was president and they and and they wanted to um, let the Bush tax cuts expire and let the top tax bracket go back up to like 38%. People thought we're saying Obama was a socialist. <laughs> and I'm like I'm like basically he just wanted to let the top 1% bracket go back to it was under reagan which which again you, you know you could argue i mean reagan was a, a pretty significant um you know game changer for american society and american politics but I mean, that's one of the biggest game changers right the way we treat treated wealth um and it, it was bipartisan i mean like eisenhower was a republican it had it at 89 percent. i mean these were you know we did this was kind of a bipartisan thing where we just we taxed the, the the super rich pretty highly and it created a, a pretty vibrant middle class right i mean it's it, you know it, which is a pretty rare thing in world history to have a vibrant middle class but we've we've kind of had it in this country and i think i mean that's the i mean that's to me the challenge is, is when you look at these so 
source of these tax rates, right? Or, or, or what does it mean when we say, you know, American corporate tax rates are the highest in the world or whatever, but with all these loopholes, like I think GE a couple years ago paid nothing in taxes, you know, basically they got money back. Um, so, so what, so what do these things even mean and how do we, it, 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 I appreciate the Rawlsian question you raised because it, how, how is it that we tend to societal arrangements in a way that would be the lifting of, of all the rising tide that would lift all boats. And it seems like concentrating the wealth in the hands of the, of the wealthy doesn't seem to do it. So that's right. I think that that's where, you know, yeah, I think even a lot of economists have arrived at that point. So, so Back up a step. If if the campfire we're sitting around is what is inequality at the moment, we're talking about economic inequality and income inequality, and and there are definitely a few other pathways leading off this campfire that I, I also want to explore because I think that I think that that's part of the blind spot in a sense is that when we talk about inequality, as you say, one we we kind of assume it's a negative, which I think you know, and probably we live in a moment where that is true. Um, but it's also intellectually interesting to kind of keep room for the positive, creative powers of me being taller, taller than you. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why the world is structured the way it is, Scott. <laughs> um, but also that there are many other dimensions to to life than than just wealth and income um, that, in some ways, maybe have a more profound effect upon our our relative well-being. Um, so I, I want to get into some of those things too, but but just staying on 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 kind of income inequality for a moment. I think that there's a lot of you know, kind of very mainstream like economic thinking now that says like yes, you know, the basic intuition that incentives help society and everybody, and so you you don't want to you know sort of take away everybody's earning power and then distribute everybody. Um, a food ration so that everyone has exactly the same consumption possibilities. I mean, we, 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 we've tried that. Um, what, what tends to happen, if I take the China example, is when, is when you totally centralize and control consumption allotments, allocations, uh, all sorts of shadow economies uh, emerge. And, and, and there's still inequality. It's just we use different things to count it. Right, I have access to um, to the shop vehicle, and and you don't. So I can provide taxi services in an underground economy, and I can I can sort of trade in the ability to perform that favor for all sorts of things that I need. And and people who don't have access to that asset don't have that kind of earning potential in that underground economy. So so it's it's hard to it's hard to build. Uh, a complex ecosystem of exchange without allowing all sorts of variety of outcomes. Having said that, yeah, it seems that that you know a lot of mainstream economists are of the view that at a certain level, um, when there's too much, uh, particularly like uh, wealth inequality, it 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 actually is a drag on on the economy. And and one of the reasons is that, you know, when you've got so much money that you just, you don't have anything else to spend it on. Right. So you save it. Um, And so it just kind of stagnates and it pools. It doesn't circulate as much. But if you took that same money and gave it to people who, you know, don't yet have a home, then they would buy a home, right? Don't yet have 
um, a computer to access the internet, then they would buy a computer. That money moves yeah, a lot absolutely. more. And, and that creates jobs and that creates all sorts of good things, you know, all these service industries and stuff like that. That That's the kind of economic argument to say that if we could somehow take some of that stagnant pool of wealth and put it into use, then that might help things be better off. So, And, and then there are these arguments too about, and, and you talked about it, just the the kind of... Uh, the, the, the capture of political institutions that happen when there are extreme wealth differences, right? If I'm, if I'm Jeff Bezos and I can go around and I can hand out pretty big favors that governments come to me and they want to get, like, where am I going to put my next headquarters? And so I have a capacity to sort of tilt this playing field in ways that, um, that benefit me, but maybe wouldn't be the same choices that, you know, the, the all of the voters who democratically elected these people would would like them to make so there are all of these destabilizing or or kind of co- corrupting influences of of extreme wealth differences in in the system and I think that that is something we can point to and 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 quite clearly say that yeah that that is inequality uh, and probably inequality in a in a negative sense because it's holding us all back some ways. Yeah, and, and and there's a certain kind of inequality, I think, that, that almost becomes seemingly intractable. Where, you know, if you look at the U.S., for example, it just costs so much money to run for office, right? To run for political office, to get elected, and to get reelected. So you just, I mean, you, and, and, and with the creation of things like super PACs, where people can just give basically unlimited amounts of money to these political action committees, um, I mean, these things are just stack the deck. I mean, I mean, I mean, they just you know. It's funny because it's not, it's not, it doesn't, it's not rocket science. But you, but you don't hear people complain about it that much. I mean, you like you don't hear outrage that you know the super rich have so much more access to the levers of power, right, than the middle class or working class or poor people. You, you, you just you know like again, it not that you don't hear criticism. A criticism of it at all, but but it's surprising how accommodated we've become to it. Where or it's mm. it's like the frog in the kettle thing, right? Where they say if you throw a frog in boiling water, it'll hop right out. But if you put a frog in, in a kettle and turn the water on and it get, get it to a boil, it'll just lay in there and die. Uh, and that's an out. That's a, from a book title or something. The frog in the kettle, but. I'm sure we've all heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. I've never attempted that experiment, and I never would. But and yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really. do the experiment. But but that's the thing that that that, that is is interesting is the the degree to which uh, we become accommodated to certain forms of inequality that that become problematic. Hmm. And I don't know if that's so, also in America is because everyone thinks they're going to be the next millionaire. Right. So, and so let's 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 take that as a I think that's a great phrase to kind of bring back to the central fire and, and then explore some of the other dimensions of it. Because I, I, I'm I'm interested in kind of taking the uh, the opportunity of, of America having um, a giant convulsing moment about inequality economically to talk about all sorts of other dimensions of it. But but this point that you landed on that it seems in some way we become quite accommodating. I think that you can look at. I think we can take that in in many other directions to explore and kind of shine a light on 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 the other work that the kind of inequality has upon shaping our world. I was reading just the other day. It's a very short book by by Mary Beard, um, who 
has done, like here here in the UK, is is maybe the preeminent scholar on on ancient Greece and ancient Rome, um, and uh, she also wrote a book on on women in power and and took like this deep cultural look at at kind of the structure of the concept of of, of gender in um, in Western society, and uh, and I underlined this one sentence that I thought was really really summarized it for me. Um, so my basic premise is that our mental, cultural template for a powerful person remains resolutely male. And she was she was talking about how, like from from you know from the times of ancient Rome and 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 before, if you thought of a person in power, probably the the picture in your head was was of a man. Just as if you think of a of a college professor, you know, chances are still today the picture in the head is is going to be is going to be male. Um, and, you know, the, the back of the book, she kind of summarizes her argument quite well. You can't easily fit women into a structure that is already coded as male. You have to change the structure. And so this is, I mean, you know, one of the profound dimensions of, of inequality Inequality is just the, the cultural coding of, of roles and identities in society that, that, you know, a lot of, I mean, now we are, you know, sort of becoming woke to a lot of this cultural code, but I, I would, I would hypothesize that still most of it is latent. You know, we're not, we're not looking at it. And, and what, what do you do with, with, um, with, with ways of looking at, at the world that are, are just deeply coded yeah. to see differences? Sometimes it's situational. Like in this country, I, I was actually surprised at how the George Floyd uh, you know the 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 police, you know, brutality and murder of George Floyd actually didn't just spark anger and protest, but did uh, there were systemic questions raised and widely. I mean, like the Black Lives Matter movement has had a pretty wide impact in the cultural conversation this past year, which is which is interesting. Um, and helpful, and I think it's 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 caused people to take seriously. You know, I, I've talked with a lot of um, white people who are at, who started asking serious questions about the way policing is done, right? Um, and and reflecting on their own experiences with police power and things like that, and taking a lot more seriously the testimony and experience of African Americans. So, I mean, but yeah, I mean, but I think you're right. Like, oftentimes this stuff does go relatively unchallenged, or it's just you know you. It, you you kind of accept it, right? You just kind of accommodate and accept it, um, which I think you know. Again, if you compare the average the average level of outrage at racial inequality right now with economic inequality, I think it's 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 not. It doesn't feel to me to be, to be even comparable. Like I, I think I think the racial the the, the outrage and, and interrogating of the racial inequality right now in the United States and, and throughout the world. I mean, the George Floyd stuff did spark some international uh, questions about race and power and authority, but but that just you know it doesn't. It's not as widespread on economic inequality and power, right? But you know, does that surprise you? I mean, because you know, one of the but one of the things about economic inequality is. And maybe we've got this entirely wrong, but we live in this culture and understanding. And we just did it too the past twenty minutes. That that some degree of it is okay, and and it's just that there's this kind of slippery slope, but nobody's quite sure where that slope is. But at a certain point, now it's a problem, and and where that point is is a kind of a, a live debate, and and you can kind of debate it from from many dimensions. But but um, 
you know, racial inequality or, or gender inequality. This is clear cut. The, the, the presence of it is a wrong. And, 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 and that's, that's, that's how it's framed. So it doesn't surprise me at all that the, 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 the cultural conversation is, is both uh, much clearer and in some ways the battle lines are much more clearly drawn on these non-economic dimensions of inequality where, um, you know, right and wrong, good and evil are, are much more black and white. Yeah, yeah you don't hear people making rousing um, uh, moral de- defenses of like gender inequality or racial inequality. But you do, pe- you do hear people make, and across the political spectrum, right, make, as you're saying, like, so even someone like Rawls, where there are arguments grounded in morality for economic inequality, right, that, that, that somehow the, the presence of it is actually, as you were saying earlier, beneficial for society. Right, and I mean, if you, if, if you're, I mean, that conversation is also, you know, kind of tightly constrained by the history of the 20th century and the wars that were fought over you know, as, as, as our side fought them, um, a, an economic and political freedom, which to eliminate the economic inequality, you would have to deny people. So it's, yeah, so it, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely interesting that we use this one word, inequality, but when we, and we often list the different forms of inequality, you know, income inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality, but, but when you look at them, there are, there are some very big differences in how we evaluate each, each form of it. And maybe, maybe that's because, so, so I think on one level, right, the grounds and conditions for inequality are rooted in particularity, right? If, we, if, if there was no particularity, there probably wouldn't be much inequality, right? If we were all endowed with the same kind of physical capacities and the same kind of intellectual capacities and, and these sorts of things, uh, you know, we... We wouldn't have um, so part of what I think it, it, inequality stems from is just particularity, right? And particularity in itself is not a problem, right? Like we wouldn't, we in fact we wouldn't. We I don't think we'd want to live in a world without particularity. But but the question is, at what point does does sort of the the the, the ground level inequality that exists as a necessary condition of particularity become problematic and maybe immoral or maybe oppressive. I, I didn't understand that. But if I could, if I could like, but what it, or at least what I heard, and, and what for me is a clearer statement of what you were saying, and sorry, this is just in my own words, is that it seems to me that there's a, there's a difference actually between um, if we can find that the inequality debate to a material debate versus, well, the immaterial, that's the wrong word, but kind of the, the higher stuff. You know, I mean, because, and there is something, again, like American French Revolution, very, very rationalist about thinking of inequality in this kind of material conditions way. And we're going we're gonna to meter that with, um, with laws you know, sovereignty, civil rights, uh, market access. But, but, you know, as long as we're thinking about inequality in, in material terms, we're always going to be in this world of, like, there's, there's mine and there's thine, right? There's some stuff that's mine, there's some stuff in, that's yours, and we're always going to be creating these distinctions and, and, and status and, and divides from one another. That's the material 
plane of inequality. But, you know, the kind of, that there's a plane of dignity or a plane of, of you know, kind of emotion, of, of, of personhood, where it seems like a an equality is achievable, or at least we can imagine it morally. That, that kind of involves, you know, I, on that plane, um, you know, I don't feel superior to you. I don't feel inferior to you. We can actually meet on the same, on the same status plane and, and we can all coexist there. And, and may, and maybe that's, maybe that's the, another way to state it. And I'll stop and then I'll let you react to it is that when we talk about material inequality, we're, we're never actually willing to talk about material equality, but when we talk about racial inequality or gender inequality or 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 all sorts of the, the the immaterial forms of inequality then the goal is equality we have a story around that so what do you make of that yeah no i think that's right and i think you know it, it's interesting because in the christian tradition the term for this is is the imago dei the image of god and so there's this idea that oh that's so cool Wait, 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 wait. What's, what's this term? we got to put in the show notes. Yeah, I'm, Gen- I'm slowly in, learning my Latin from you. Yeah, now in Genesis 1, you know, the, at the end of the creation story, <laughs> God says, Let's ma- let us make humankind in our own image, like in the divine image. And so this idea that, you look, not everybody, so some people are going to be smarter than other people, some people are going to be stronger than other people, some people are going to be more entrepreneurial or less entrepreneurial. But I think what you're saying is this kind of imago Dei concept. Everybody deserves the same level of dignity. Everybody deserves a, a, a certain kind of equal regard, right? Despite their differences, and and that you know, and that's you know, kind of across the board, right? So so we have that kind of concept of the question becomes: Is there such a thing? Is there kind of a, an economic situation that actually functionally undergirds that kind of dignity, where where people uh. where, where, the, where there's a power structure that's so different? Right and so unilaterally, unilaterally unbalanced mm. that 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 kind of um, e- that sort of common dignity is functionally eroded. Right, it's kind of it's it's lip service. Right, because well, some people are just more of a person than other people. So there is. So there, you're, you're saying like there there has to be a connection between those planes. Of, yeah, of I think so. I think so. I mean, it, I think, it, I think it, it, if if we if we believe. In racial equality, and there is a clear, you know, statistical racial divide in our wealth, and like, and and the racial divide explains a lot of it. Then, then we we haven't <laughs> achieved <laughs> that that racial equality, the racial dignity, and so and so. What you're saying is that that the material level is the is the acid test of it, or or it's more that there's there's some point beyond which it's 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 like I'm not I'm, I'm not expressing this well, but there's some point at which it's clearly it's a fail. Yeah, yeah, I, like because I think because I think what 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 you were able to do just now, and I think what we all do is we kind of set out these planes and make them distinct, right? And we can do that conceptually, but are they really ever distinct, right? Are they really? Right. Right. Do power relations and stuff really compromise the ability of somebody to really have that kind of ideal equal dignity we're thinking about? And and is it is that the case also with just income inequality? D- does mm. does it exist? It's, especially if it's systemic and kind of baked in the cake, is it real? Do we really have that ideal that we're talking about? So or, that's okay. Very we might have yeah. different outcomes, but you know, people right. are so it's are, have that, equality. That's interesting because I, you don't hear that argument being made all that 
much. I mean, or at least, hmm, well, no, you do, but maybe not. It, it seems to me that the, the conversations about uh, wealth inequality tend to remain kind of economic arguments versus saying that, like, if there is that that extreme wealth inequality, it must be that there are um, other deeper inequalities in society that we are not owning up about. That 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 the the wealth inequality is kind of like a proxy or 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 an indicator or a kind of litmus test of 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 a, a moral inequality in in society at a certain point. That's that's interesting. I mean, so the interesting you know one interesting dimension to take that is we've been talking a lot about sort of you know. The U.S., I guess in my mind, you know, I'm thinking about Western Europe having these conversations, but how much does that thinking apply and does that indictment apply to um, to the global condition, right? You talk about, yeah, New York is coming back to normal. Things are not normal in India. <laughs> yeah. Things are not normal in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, uh, like, this pandemic is a, a, a stark case of the um just the difference in outcomes among you know the the wealthy the poor the resilient the precarious do you know uh, i was looking at a study just a couple of days ago and it was looking at uh, extreme poverty globally and if you look at like 2018 2019 the projection was that extreme poverty globally was going to fall from about 500 million people to about 300 million people by 2021. Instead, it's increased from 500 million people to 700 million people. Wow. So, you know, versus where we thought we'd be, there are 400 million more people living in extreme poverty in, in the world today. And, it, and it's largely due to increases in, in, in things like grain prices, like the price of corn or maize is up, I think, 70% over the past couple of years. And we don't really notice it, you and me. I mean, I guess that I don't know, when you get corn tortillas, they're, they're fractionally more expensive. But, you know, when you're living off of staples, um, it, it can be the difference between sort of being fed and, 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 and starvation. Um, and and that's, just, that's just one example. I mean, the, you know, before we were talking about the COVID pandemic, uh, development economists were talking about the AIDS pandemic, which, you know, doesn't even really make headlines anymore in the United States or, or here in the UK. But you know, three quarters of global AIDS cases are in Africa today. So, you know, there are these, there are all of these dimensions of inequality. The once we start to, once we start to um, e evaluate our moral progress <laughs> in in inequality terms, it starts to, you know, it gets really bad for us. Yeah, no, and but that that that, that is a, a deeply moral question, right? If we're if if we've got systems that are not ero they're not eroding poverty, but but drastically increasing it, right? Is that is that an acceptable form of inequality, like Rawls is talking about, or is this again a kind of systemic inequality that gets worse and worse, right? Where 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 the more you have an entrenched class or group, um, the more their interests. Are served, which again, it's a, it, it's you know a, a feedback loop, right? Where you just get more and more influential and powerful. And it's kind of you know this this feedback loop. Um, so you're familiar with fractals, right? These kind of patterns that yeah. you know the micro pattern repeats at the macro level. So so I mean, you can see fractals in um, in in kind of this dynamic of 
you know, income, wealth, inequalities are are many other inequalities too. Um, I'm 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 flipping through I'm flipping through my book, and and just because there's full quote, of great quote 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 you to yourself. Well, okay, this isn't a very exciting quote. It's just quoting statistics that I quoted. Um, you know, in Paris, people who live northeast of the river, this the Seine by sex to sea, people who live northeast are only half as likely to have a university degree as those who live to the southwest. In Australia, mature adults earning less than $20,000 per year are more than twice as likely to suffer from chronic illness as those earning more than $50,000. I mean, yeah, in deep inequalities in health, education, and opportunity remain, and in many cases have worsened among citizens. And the past two years have have only expanded those gaps. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, and that is the, I mean, I think that the heart of the question we're kind of raising, like, what do we do with that? And, and what, what sorts of inequalities are, are kind of inevitable? And, is, and from the Rawlsian kind of perspective, like, as you were saying earlier, or like, or not even inevitable, but maybe we could argue have some positive societal function. And what kinds are really just, um, ought we be, ought we find, ought we be indignant about, or ought we really find problematic? Problematic and, and I guess another one would be kind of like, um, just dysfunctional. Yeah. You know, it's been a long time since I've read um, John Rawls' A Theory of Justice. I don't know if I would recommend that book. I mean, you got to be... We'll put it in the show notes uh, for those who haven't read it. It does feel like, you know, here's somebody who really liked to think hard about profound moral questions, which is, which is great, but... I mean, he could have he could have done with a really good copy editor. I mean, or or, <laughs> or, or or just like go out to more comedy clubs or something. Like there are a lot of ways to say things, and some of them are more interesting than others. And he didn't always find those ways. Um, but I do think that you know, if some and, and I'm sure it's happened, I have to reach out to some people and 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 ask like who's doing this now. But like a a contemporary complexity scientist, um, or or just a you know, an evolutionary biologist, anybody who's thinking about ecosystems and, and how healthy ecosystems work, I think if they read John Rawls' A Theory of Justice, they would say what's missing here is is a kind of organic dimension to it. I mean, the, the whole argument is purely rational, that any inequality is fine as long as it actually is a positive incentive that ha- helps the, the, even the worst off to do more, but but there's a kind of you know missing social dimension to that, which is just what happens to the the organic body of the community as inequality increases. You know, I think of of kind of the the concrete experience that I think a lot of us had over the past year um, at the outset of the pandemic. Uh, everybody is stuck at home. And and we kind of we 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 saw anew this class of of labor that had always been there called essential workers, and there's something I think quite insightful about how how divided the lives of people in our neighborhoods had become by income, by education, you know, by age, that 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 when we when we um, went into lockdown, it, it was remarkable to meet these people. We're like, wow, we live in the same neighborhood. I never knew that. Which, which to me suggests, is, is that the kind of the, is that part of the corrosive 
aspect of of inequality that that the the rational calculus of of what's fair just misses entirely that that the kind of the farther apart we are in in our our livelihood and lifestyle the the less it all works the less it all kind of comes together and connects yeah yeah it's really interesting i think i mentioned this a few episodes ago about the show snowpiercer where they're in this train in a global kind of um you know, there's been a, an ice age, a new ice age, but they designed this train that could kind of power its own. I got to watch the show because it still makes no sense to me. I, yeah, I, this, I, this, it's really, but it's interesting because there, there's so much inequality and so much classism. But really, what they're doing is like they've ju- they've just taken like a late modern Western take and put it on a train, and the resources are a little more concentrated. And scarce, and so it's really the the inequality that exists on this train is just a pronounced form of what existed in Western culture before they got on the train, right? But so when you're looking at it, it seems pretty harsh. But it's like, well, now this is just like taking the society we live in in the kind of late modern capitalist West and 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 concentrating it, right? Like in, into one small social context, and so it looks like a lot more unequal, you know, and. It's funny because to the essential workers, they're like in the second class. There's like first, second, third class, and then like, um, and then the enders. They're like on the very on the very back of the train. So the the these essential workers are somewhere between second and third class, right? And so it's so it's just it, it's so interesting how all these things are reified in this post-apocalyptic drama. But you you look at it and it's like, yeah, it's post-apocalyptic and sci-fi, but really it's just taking. It's just concentrating what exists all around us all the time and putting it in a, in a reified fictional context. So it looks, it looks worse, but I don't know that it is any. I, think, I don't know that it's any different than the world we live in. It's just, it's just because it's more diffuse, you don't notice it. And, does the, and what do you take from... Is it a happy experiment? <laughs> no, I mean, it's dark. I mean, the show is dark. Right? Uh, dark the yeah. show is dark. <laughs> the show is dark. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty. Um, it's pretty, um, and it, it does wind up in revolution. I mean, there is. Uh, they so, do wind up right. in a revolt um, so, against so, the system. So that's what's interesting, and I feel like that's. Um, you know, you've put your finger on, on I suppose the 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 maybe the hardest question to answer about inequality is you know whether whether it's good or bad, you know, the benefits outweigh the costs or whatever. Just how much will people put up with? I mean, yeah, it, and you know when, when you, when you identify it, it, then it's kind of real, and 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 then it's a thing that's there that divides us, and 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 this it it becomes it becomes a a powerful and clear evidence to me on the wrong side of that inequality that the world isn't working for me. The way the world is set up, it's not working for me. That that maybe I have a chance of being in a better world if we bust this one up. But, you know, it's interesting, and this is to me the biggest, I, I don't know if it's a failure of Marxism, but I think it's, it's a place where he just seems, seems to have gotten it wrong. And that Marx would have imagined, right, this is like the dialectical, you know, idea that like, you know, there's these material struggles and stuff. And he thought basically that the, the, the Marxist, the communist revolution would happen in a place like England or a developed United States kind of context or something like that, where, where you have these inequalities that, but you also have these economic resources and there's so much wealth and so much, like he would never have thought it's going to happen in Russia, right? In, in, a, in a kind of peasant farmer kind of context or in, or even in China. I, I don't think Marx would even thought 
he would have thought you would have had to go through these very advanced capitalist stages first, which then would get people so frustrated because of so much abundance that's so unequal. And, and that really, where I think Marx's theory seems to be feeling right now is societies like that don't tend to revolt. <laughs> like, you know, they, they, they don't, you know, the, the abundance does not make people revolutionary. Well, I mean, so that that's an interesting, I mean, you're, you're the country that just had an insurrection um, a few months ago around around your presidential election. But I, I guess you can argue that that was quite an isolated thing and it, it, it never really threatened the, you know, the, the, the transfer of power or... I guess no, no, and it wasn't about equality. I mean, it was about, it was about Donald Trump kind of kind of trumping up quite, quite I the plan words, but a narrative. But, but those, you know, those folks were not arguing for redistribution, redistribution of wealth or resources or power. I mean, they were, they, they were angry at what they thought was a stolen election. Right. Well, so, so a, a, a couple of interesting things there. I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, where, where Marx was really interesting was, you know, uh, kind of in the way that, you know, like there are, you know, people who, people who put like a big frame on, on what's going on in the world and a big explanatory theory for it. And, and his whole argument that human history is driven by this, this, this dialectic, this kind of back and forth between, um, between the, the material forces of production, you know, capital and labor and that, that, yeah, like the, in, in the context of industrialization where, 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 where capital was just sort of, you know, this, this monster chewing up society and, 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 and turning everything into an input into the machine that there would be a kind of a reaction, um, of, of workers as a class and, and, and that that would drive the next revolution and iteration is interesting. You know, as I think of, you know, sort of, at least in my mind, the, the next big theorist after Marx trying to explain such things, uh, in my mind was Karl Polanyi, uh, the guy who, the guy who gave us the phrase paradigm shift. And, 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 you know, in the 1940s published this book called the great transformation, which, in, in that book, the, the question that he basically asked was, like, how did it ever come to this? You know, the 19th century was, was pretty peaceful in Europe. And now here I am, and, like, it's not even the midway point of the 20th century. And we've had two world wars. Like, how did that happen? Like, where did things... And, and, and he argued that it was these forces of industrialization that had just so dismantled uh, society. I mean, this fabulously successful um, technology of of production. I, 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 was, I was reading a, a kind of a, a, a retrospective on, on Polanyi's life, and, and he was talking about how, you know, someone born in 1875 had more in common in terms of their material uh, life, had more in common with uh, a soldier in ancient Rome than with their own great-grandchildren. Yep. Like, that's how radical the transition was. And, 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 and so Polanyi's argument was kind of very much in the tradition of Marx, is that society reacted. And one reaction was to try to, like, protect the national body. You know, we are being, you know, our national identity, our people is being dismantled by these atomizing um, industrial forces. And that was fascism. And then the other reaction was... Um, 
you know, the the worker, like much as Marx had predicted, is 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 being atomized, is being alienated by the industrial forces, and 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 that was communism. And so for him, it was a quite, you know, I guess a a a, a warning signal to the future that you know the this dialectic theory does seem to do some pretty good explanatory work. Yeah. So we need to think pretty carefully about about the the relationship and and the ebb and flow between you know between economy and society um, in order to to prevent the kind of the worst the worst reactions to that difference there was definitely as an, as an aside there was a whole bunch of like a, a apocalyptic um, warning signals in the form of big books in the 1940s and 1950s it was it must have been a really fun time to be, um, you know, to be writing sort of world histories because, yeah. Now I'm now I'm off in the woods. I don't know how I got here. It's uh, no, no, Le- no, lead, no, me, lead me back to our campfire. No, yeah, no. I think that's and I think the Polanyi stuff is is helpful because I think we, we're you know we talk often on this podcast about it's a different it's a new world and we need new maps and that's and Polanyi's that map maker and I think you know these are the kind of questions that but I hope we can, we'll continue to ask on this podcast because again like like some of the things you know it's it's as you mentioned earlier I think I mean, it might have been before we started recording. Um, you know, the whole idea that it's not seeing something that no one's seen, it's thinking differently about something that everyone's seeing, right? Like, uh, you know, about thinking, and that I, that's the challenge, right? It's Because discovery of something new often is serendipitous, but the hard thing is to look at reality on the ground and, and actually reimagine, you know, the parts in play and to actually think of it, you know, um, I, I think I've probably said this before, but there's a guy here in the States, his name's Paul Tripp, and he's um, kind of a, a guy who taught uh, at a seminary, and he taught counseling, and this great line from one of his books, he said, in my experience as a counselor, most people don't need um, uh, information, they need imagination. And I think that's, I mean, that's part of the key, and I mean, I think that's, this has been a great discussion, which I've appreciated, because I think it's it's how to think imaginatively about these realities, so that we can we can see the thing that's there differently, Right. The thing that's every the thing that we all take for granted as shared differently. That to me is, is sort of the most challenging and ultimately probably more valuable long term work than just mere discovery of something new. Yeah, I think I, I I agree. And you know, I looking back on this conversation, why this conversation was important for me is you know. So there were these headlines, and there was definitely a moment uh, in your country this week, and I mean. Uh, it made headlines here too. It's, it's again, it's fascinating, gawking reading to to read about the, the 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 taxes of like the most wealthy people in the world. But it does feel like the the exploration of of what do we mean by inequality, and and what is it, and 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 what role does it play, and and why is it that we can imagine equality of some things, but we can't imagine equality of of other things, I think that this is a great time to be to be exploring these questions, and and I think also with a kind of an eye toward history. To I think like one thing that seems very clear from history is that this is potentially very destabilizing stuff. That that whether justified or unjustified, whether whether conscious or unconscious, it is this notion of inequality that provides the the motive energy for 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 um for radical societal upheaval 
and and we do have you know like in your country we we do have a kind of orderly social technologies to um to do something about that to to channel those energies yeah. productively but we got to use those technologies yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if we don't use those technologies then we got all sorts of historical evidence that well the the energy is going to go somewhere and I, and I, and i feel like we didn't this is probably unfair but you know i would i would invite myself this is what i take away from this conversation and all of our listeners to to really come away from this week where inequality was in the news to to really think about the 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 urgency to to work on equality um in many dimensions as as kind of one of the one one of the healthiest and most stabilizing things that we can do um for 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 the well-being of the communities upon which you know we are a part so that was that was takeaway for me i i i just wanted to see your face again but it, you know as as usual you tricked me into into a, a, a really profound moment of citizenship so well and also i i just want to say as your friend and as your colleague um i i do appreciate so much of the work you do around these kinds of questions you know that you you set up societies and convene groups of people to ask questions and i think and and that's what we try to do on this podcast and so i just i appreciate the partnership and i i i'm i'm thrilled to partner with you in that kind of work because i think we need more of it we need more of that of of, the, of those kinds of um organic um realities where we can actually um where you're right there are possibilities but they they come when people can come together and 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 think and ask good questions and help each other see new realities so i appreciate all the work you do in those things my friend oh yeah no i appreciate you too and also to our listeners i mean um please do reach out to us uh on social media um let us know sort of where where your explorations this week have been going just yeah on on the on the nature of inequality in in society and our relationship to it um and uh, and if you're on clubhouse join us on clubhouse on mondays maybe we'll uh, we'll meet you there and uh, and pick yeah, up yeah cuz we'd love to engage you yeah we'd love to do it thanks my friend this was great this was great Scott thanks a lot thanks for listening to the atlas project we'd love to hear your feedback drop us a line or send us a message on facebook If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.